Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Lost in Science for another week. My name is Claire and this week on the program, I've actually just returned from Japan, guys. Yes, so I'm going to be talking a little bit about Japanese earthquakes. Oh, cool. Yeah, and how they are so prepared. Uh, Stu? Uh, Well, I'm actually going to talk about somebody whose birthday is on the 12th of May. You you like... Wishing um, scientists a happy birthday. I do, and I also like promoting the work of female scientists. So I'm going to be talking about Dorothy Crowfoot Hodgkin, who is a was a British uh, scientist and Nobel Prize winner. So I'll tell you a bit more about her work later on. Cool. And Manisha. Today, um, I want to talk about our beloved, native, adorable animal, the crocodile. Oh, I thought it was going to be a small, cute, fluffy one. No, but this is like... Scary and a large, large, scaly, <laughs> horrifying one. Absolutely, yep, terrifying animal. It scares me two bits, but very, very fascinating. It and should be a chomping good time. Oh, and <laughs> a very Australian animal indeed. Yes, exactly. Awesome! Mm. I can't wait to hear all about it. Yep. I just got back from Japan. Like I said, what a wonderful country to visit. The food was amazing. The people were really nice. The transport was really easy. The culture, amazing. Um, it's pretty much the most efficient and most delicious place than you can than you can hope for. It's pretty good. But the downside is that they're on a massive fault line, right? Yes, that is the downside. <laughs> yeah. All right. Mm. You've already picked. You've already picked my story. That's that's right. So. Um, in fact, it single-handedly accounts for a fifth of the world's um, most powerful earthquakes just wow. in Japan. Yeah, considering how many fault lines there are in the world and how many tectonic plates. Tell, I, tell me, were there any earthquakes while you were there? There actually was um, a deadly earthquake while I was there in oh. the Kyushu um, province in southern Japan. So it was a 6.5 magnitude earthquake. There were, yeah, collapsed houses earth slides and yeah it killed 48 people so it wasn't a small earthquake by any means yeah thinking about japan that's it's a population of 128 million people so they've got such a huge population um and they're always in this constant state of readiness for the arrival of the next sort of huge earthquake to come along now like Stu suggested just before um there is a reason why there are so many earthquakes in Japan, Um, and it's location, location, location. (laughs) Oh, so silent. (laughs) So the the location of Japan, it's basically is where two plates meet, is that Well, it's actually three plates, but I'll get to that in a minute. Um, So the the Japanese islands are part of a volcanic island arc. Now, this is a place where volcanoes are produced, um, and it's above an area where one ocean tectonic plate goes underneath 
another ocean tectonic plate. And this is called um, something you would have heard of before, a subduction zone. So it's, that just means one tectonic mm-hmm. plate is going underneath another. And this means pretty much that it's just been this chain of islands that's built up from volcanoes erupting over time that has created all the land in Japan. Now, earthquakes occur at these subduction zones because of the tectonic plate movement. So earthquakes can occur when the plates move apart, so they move um, away from each other or when they slide past each other or they converge on each other or, in Japan's case, they subduct each other, so one goes over the other. And the movement of the plates, especially if it's sudden, has the potential to create some really huge earthquakes. But something that's very unique to these um, subduction plate boundaries is not only can there be very big earthquakes, but they can also be really deep because the plates are going quite far, quite far down. So what does it mean if it's deep? That's a good question, Chris. Right. What does it mean if it's deep? The deepness would affect the intensity of the mm. quake at the surface and probably mean it would be spread over a wider area. I think I it think. affects yeah, I think it affects whether the likelihood of tsunamis and that sort of mm. thing. Mm. But don't really know. Yeah, so like I said before, um Japan is unique in that it ha- it is at the boundary of three tectonic plates that are all in, in, interacting together. So there's the Philippine Sea Plate, the Pacific Sea Plate, and the Eurasian Plate. Um, and the interaction of these three plates uh, creates these huge earthquakes, such as the 2011 Tohoku earthquake that mm. resulted in the Fukushima nuclear reactor meltdown. And that was like a nine magnitude or something, wasn't that it? That was a nine magnitude, yeah, yeah which so is, huge. that was, yeah, I think the biggest earthquake But that ever. was out that was out at sea. The epicentre of that wasn't on the land, I think. No. Which is why the tidal wave caused so much damage. Yep, yeah. yep, exactly. Tsunami. 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 Sorry. Yeah. Because yes. it wasn't tidal at all. Well, no. It was just a giant wave. So it's not like this is a new thing for the Japanese. I mean, they've always had earthquakes. They've always known about earthquakes. They've lived with them. What I found quite interesting over there was how they got around them. So one way that they got around them was with buildings. Um, Every new building in Japan has a very advanced structure at their base. These are what they call base isolation devices with the aim to, when there's an earthquake, these base isolation devices aim to dissipate this energy. And they're essentially this giant rubber and steel pads that are installed at the bottom of of a building. So then the actual building sits on top of these pads and then moves Is it like a shock absorber kind of thing? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. And then they have these dissipation units that are built into the um, building structural skeleton. So they're these hydraulic cylinders that can elongate and contract as the building sways. So they take a lot of that um, extra energy while the building is actually swaying, which is pretty cool as well. Mm. Yeah. really cool. Yeah, yeah. So amazing engineering. Um, And then obviously if you really want to avoid crisis and panic in a country with so many people, um, you need quite a people-centred focus to disaster management. So Japanese people are educated on safe practices in the event of an earthquake from the youngest... Um, of ages in their schools, on the trains, like out on the street, in their families, while they're watching TV. It's so just it's kind of like fire constant. safety here. Yeah. Earthquake safety there. Yeah. Wow. And what I found really remarkable was every day without fail at 5 p.m., the same song would come blaring out of these speakers that you didn't even know existed. 
And this happens across the country. So it doesn't matter if you're in downtown Tokyo or if you're in the mountains. They have these speakers everywhere. And the music that they play is one to test out the speakers to make sure that they're all working in the case of any emergency. Um, And two, to let all the children know that it's time to go home and go to dinner. It's very cute, isn't it? Yes. The quaint side of disaster risk management. It's like on the TV, they used to have fat cat telling kids to go to bed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you went... um you went up into the countryside, into the mountains, did you? Yeah. Were there any, like, old buildings there still standing? Like, No, everything was very um, – only a couple of stories high that I saw. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, there were some old ones, but they're all very, um, like, two two or three levels type thing. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing I didn't realise is that the Japanese have um, their own way of measuring the intensity of oh. an earthquake. So um, they don't measure their earthquakes with a Richter scale they have this thing called the Shindo scale, which measures the intensity of the earthquake at a given location. So instead of looking at the magnitude of that earthquake at the epicenter, they say, okay, at this given location, say you're in like downtown Tokyo, um, at this time, this is exactly what you're feeling. Mm. So as you can imagine, um, this means that the same earthquake can have different Shindo scales around the country, depending on how far away um, that particular town was to the earthquake, which is which is also a much more informative way of passing on earthquake information and sort of working out like maybe who of your family has been affected and Mm. how much they would have been affected. So it's just a much more user-friendly way to sort of deal with that. And they've had that scale since um, 1898, but in its current form where it goes from just 1 to 10, it's only been used um, like that since the mid-90s. Cool. Yeah, which kind is kind of like a storm radar, but for or like the way that you yeah. explain a storm, but for earthquakes. Yeah, yeah, it's it's an interesting way of looking mm. at things and something that we haven't really adopted, but maybe we should. It's called the Shindo scale. Um, I sort of wish that they had taken up the opportunity though to call it the like Godzilla scale or something <laughs> like that. That that would have been like cool because Godzilla would shake the earth. He would, wouldn't he? Yeah, so that'd be a fair bit of yeah vibration. Yeah, absolutely. Or maybe it's like a measure. Is it one Godzilla's or two Godzilla's? <laughs> it's like a Godzilla and a Mothra. <laughs> Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. People may be familiar with the story of Rosalind Franklin, who was the British scientist uh, who did a lot of the work in discovering the structure of DNA. Yeah, X-ray crystallography. Yeah, but she didn't actually share in the Nobel Prize. um, And that's partly because they don't award posthumous Nobel Prizes and the Nobel Prize for discovering DNA was awarded in 1962 and she'd already passed away Mm. by that point. So... Um, although with she, ovarian the, cancer because of all that, possibly the exposure to the X-rays, yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, but I mean, there's yeah, there's a lot of people who have issues with the way she was treated by the other guys who did get the Nobel Prize because they didn't sort of give her a great deal of credit, even though they used everything that she uh, she discovered. Um, but a fellow Englishwoman did win the 1964 Nobel Prize for Chemistry, who was doing work in a very similar field of X-ray crystallography. And it's her birthday on the 12th of May. Woohoo! Um, her name is Dorothy Crowfoot Hodgkin. And the reason that 
it's spelt out that way is because she used to sign her name Dorothy Crowfoot and then someone convinced her to use her husband's name for various reasons. But um, So she, she's got work under both different names. She's okay. got work under Dorothy Crowfoot and, and under Dorothy Hodgkin. Um, so she got a Nobel Prize. She was also the recipient of the Royal Medal in 1956. She received the Copley Medal from the Royal Society in 1976, and she received the Lomonosov Gold Medal from the government of the USSR in 1982. And I'll come back to that because Mm. it's kind of a bit odd for a British scientist to get an award from the Soviet government at that time. During the Cold War, yeah. 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 So she was the third woman ever to receive first-class honours at Oxford. Uh, and then went to Cambridge to complete a PhD under the supervision of John Bernal on the structure of pepsin, which is an enzyme, digestive enzyme, breaks down proteins. And uh, she figured out the structure. Um, she's given a lot of credit for that, but she always insisted that John Bernal pretty much pushed her into into uh, the discoveries that she made and provided all the background. But she's uh, I don't know if she's just being um, humble or if she was, you know, trying to trying to give him more credit i don't know but uh when she when she um when she did that work it was one of the first times x-ray crystallography had been used to establish the structure of biological molecules because they used to use x-ray crystallography for looking at inorganic things like Mm -hmm. metals and um john banal figured out the structure of graphite for example using x-ray crystallography so she returned to oxford as a researcher and a tutor and as a teacher, as a tutor at um, Oxford, she taught a young lady by the name of Margaret Roberts, who later married and became Margaret Thatcher, uh, who was the only Prime Minister of Britain to have ever had a science degree, interestingly enough. Hmm. So Dorothy Hodgkin continued to research biological molecules, and she was the first person to accurately describe the structure of a steroid. Um, The steroid that she described was cholesterol iodide. Um, but there's obviously more than one steroid in the body, so there's plenty more to go around. Uh, And she also went on to be the first person to describe the structure of penicillin, which people didn't actually really understand very well, and that allowed them to work using penicillin as a base to develop new forms of antibiotics um, that that were not derived from penicillin. But once they understood the structure, they could understand how it worked, and therefore they could alter it to make it more effective. And in... In the late 1940s, the chemical company Merck isolated vitamin B12 and made crystals of vitamin B12. And she was among the first, well, among the first people to work on it. And she identified the structure of vitamin B12, which is what she got her uh, Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1955 was for uh, describing the structure of vitamin B12. In 1953, she was one of the first people to see the double helix model of DNA. She rushed down with all her her uh, colleagues from uh, Oxford down to Cambridge and drove down to see the uh, the model that Watson and Crick had uh, put together. So she was one of the first people in the world to actually see the double helix. And she continued working on biological mo- uh, molecules, and she was the first person to describe the structure of insulin, which allowed a much better understanding of how that worked in the body, which meant that treatment of diabetes became a lot more simple uh, and easy to uh, administer. Now, she was the second woman ever to receive the Order of Merit Medal, uh, the first one being Florence Nightingale. So she was right up there in uh, in popularity with it's the... a big um, gap, though. The Royal, yeah, quite a long time before 
she won her uh, uh, medal after uh, Florence Nightingale. And she's the only woman to have been awarded the Copley Medal, which is from the Royal Society. Mm. Um, now, Is that specific to chemistry? That's just a science award. Mm. It's, um, it's a lot more general. You can get it for all sorts of things. But she's the only woman who's ever got one. So, really? Yeah. It's, That's uh, surprising. It is oh, quite surprising. Disgusting. Um, now, yeah. I mentioned I mentioned that she got the um, Lomonosov Medal uh, from the Soviet Union in 1982, mm. and that's partly because she was a member of the Communist Party. <gasps> cool. Um, so she she achieved some notoriety because she wrote the foreword to a scientific work that was published by the wife of Romanian dictator Nicolae Ceausescu, huh? um, which later turned out that. She didn't actually write it. So um, oh. Ceausescu's wife didn't write this scientific work that she'd been credited with. It was written by a whole bunch of other scientists to make her seem more accomplished, and she'd actually never finished high school. Mm. So um, Dorothy, Dorothy Hodgkin signed, you know, wrote all this stuff about what great work it was and sort of that came back to, uh, to haunt her a little bit later on. But look, her, her actual body of work, her science is is pretty outstanding, and she's yeah, you know well well awarded Absolutely. and really um, did some amazing work. Uh, she's a real pioneer in organic chemistry, and a great contributor to science. Um, she passed away in 1994 at the age of 84. But I just thought we would wish Dorothy a happy birthday for the 12th happy of May. Birthday. Happy yes. birthday, Dorothy. Our crocodiles. Yeah. On a scale of one to ten, probably like, about a nine and a half. Yeah. They actually really terrify me because they're so... Like, they're so primal. And, I know. And they're like mm, ruthless and mm, yeah. powerful. Like yeah. they're terrifying. Have, they, have you seen one? No, I'm too scared. Oh. I do want to see one, but like oh, from afar, I don't know. Oh, Okay. It's like it's this internal battle right now. Like I really want to see one, but then I don't want to see one because I don't want to die. Yeah. I'm sure I can see one without dying. There are, there are some small ones that you can see that you, and you can just sort of build up to seeing a big one. Maybe. Yeah, maybe I'll start with like a yeah. plush crocodile. Yeah, or I mean, crocodile babies are pretty cute. Maybe they you can are, see yeah. a little little crocodile mm. first, and then sort of wean your way. Everybody can see surely. <laughs> crocodiles, crocodiles—they're from the family Crocodilidae, and they are. That's a good word. Um, they are tropical reptiles, and unlike alligators, they're really sensitive to the cold. Tropical tropical reptile makes them sound funner than they actually are. Tropical reptile. Yeah, no. Imagine them with like sunglasses tropical and like is board fun. shorts or something. Like tropical diseases aren't fun necessarily. They're more fun than, than um, temperate <laughs> <Normal> diseases. <laughs> Arguably. They've got a pina colada in their hand. Anyway, sorry, Manisha. <laughs> I'm just imagining like a bunch of crocodiles with like swim trunks on. and they're Hawaiian like, shirts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, with a pina colada, some sunnies on, a hat. Yeah. They're all having yep. a good time. Having a crocodile day party. Yep. Uh, okay, so. Crocodiles, alligators. So I'm going to tell you a few commonalities or differences. Unlike alligators, as I said, crocodiles really, they're tropical um, reptiles. So they really, really, they're really, really sensitive to the cold. Which is good for people in, in New South Wales and Victoria. Which not is good so for people who for... are not in the tropics. It's great <laughs> for people like me. Um, are they found on many continents? Yes. they. Um, so crocodiles are pretty 
pretty widespread. They're pretty much in all the tropics all around the world. Okay. So the way you tell a croc and an alligator apart morphologically is by looking at their head and snout shapes. Alligators have long and narrow um, heads and their snouts are pointy, so they're more in a V shape. Whereas crocodiles, sorry, those are crocodiles have a pointy V shape. Alligators have um, wider and rounder snouts and they're more U shaped. So alligators, U shaped like vowel and vowel. That's how I remembered it. Um, also, crocodiles have the same, uh, like their upper jaw and their lower jaw are the same size. So they, when they close their mouth, it sits flush and their teeth are visible outside of their mouths. So they sort of, because they sort of look like they have a bit of an underbite, don't they? Yeah, they have some a of snaggle their bottom, tooth. Snaggle tooth, yeah, yeah snaggle yeah. tooth. Yeah, so some of their teeth come out. Whereas alligators, their upper jaw is actually bigger than their lower jaw. So their lower jaw will sit inside of their upper jaw. And Overbite. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And so, so the teeth are all hidden. So, okay. And the last noticeable um, difference between crocodiles and alligators is that crocodiles are much, much, much more aggressive than alligators. Um, crocodiles are often the apex uh, predator in their environment, which means that they basically eat everything. They'll ambush their prey. So they'll eat anything. So they'll eat fish and birds and people. And people and People's dogs. Yeah, they Water eat buffaloes. massive things. Buffaloes. They just, mm-hmm. they just, they're they'll just go for machines. They're huge, and like some of the bigger crocs will even eat little crocs. And there's a whole mm. cannibalistic side to it. It's just, geez, they're terrifying. Um, they're typically solo, so they don't really make groups, but they will form groups in certain situations, like if they're basking or if they're feeding on a large prey. But biologists have noticed that when they're forming these groups, they actually have a really um, defines social hierarchy. Mm. So the the males are like really, really aggressive towards one another and they're always aggressive towards one another. But as long as they maintain their social standing, um, it, they can maintain some sort of peace in group situations. And the bigger and fatter and larger crocodiles, as you can imagine, are the top dogs, top crocs. And they get the best uh, basking spots and mates and territory and food. And they get to feed first and things like that. So there's a bit of a social hierarchy there. Uh, Something that's interesting about crocodiles that I didn't know before is that they're actually quite vocal. Biologists have determined that they can have up to um, 20 different vocalizations. And they normally vocalize in social interaction um, like situations. So when they're acquiring mate or territory... And um, another cool time that they socialize is when they first hatch. So the mm. new hatchlings actually chirp out, and when uh, so their their eggs that are in a in their nests. nests basically. And a lot of the time, this is like in sand and it's covered over. And then the um, the females will hear the chirping from the hatchlings and excavate the the nest and collect the hatchlings and then protect them so that's pretty cool so other common calls are distress calls to alert others of danger and also threat calls so this is when they're defending so they hiss at each other and i do not want to be on the receiving end of any of these calls and um okay and during the breeding season the males make a low rumbly powerful grunt to advertise their sexuality and get their get their women yeah or get their to the female ladies. crocodiles yeah and so they have this really low rumbling noise which actually mm. um it, it'll travel further in the ground so it, mm. and then so they they call all the female crocs to their yard <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. 
Is it um? Can Kim hear? Is it too low for Kim to hear, or can we hear this rumbling? No, you can hear them. Yeah, okay, they're good. really they're really low. A lot of um, I was when I was reading up about this, there are some vocalizations that they make that we are not aware of. But yeah, these ones are really like really loud, really. Oh, and also, um, females when they lay their eggs, they like send out a call of their own to let other crocodiles know that they've laid eggs, like a chicken. Oh, really? Chickens? Yeah, they go when they lay an egg. I don't. Maybe crocodiles bacaw as well. Um, okay, so another interesting fact about crocodiles is that, like some other reptiles, uh, they actually don't have any sex chromosomes. So their sex is not described or determined by their genes. Instead, their sex is determined by the temperature of the incubated eggs. Females tend to be born in temperatures of 30 degrees or less, and um, males tend to be uh, born in temperatures of 32 to 35. So if you're in that 31 range, you'll get a mix of both sexes. It's going to be um, interesting if... uh temperatures increase that exactly. there'll be less females being born yeah exactly it's actually already uh, as the yeah as the global temperature increases yeah so it's actually already um in a lot of the reptile populations it's uh there's there's already been um dramatic like skews in sex ratios where you do end up getting one sex over the other and that leads to uh population declines and even population crashes so yeah as you can imagine with our current uh rising temperature trends uh, this is probably not a very good thing for our crocodiles. Although they could just move south. There has been actually rain shifts, so that's true too. Um, okay, so in Australia we have freshwater and saltwater crocodiles, and they're both found in northern Australia. Freshwater crocodiles are endemic to the area, although saltwater crocodiles, the same species, has um, is does does have persistent populations in Asia. Um, freshwater crocodiles are not nearly as big or as aggressive as saltwater crocs. And they typically uh, grow to be about two to three meters long. And the females tend to weigh around 40 kilos, whereas the males weigh around 70 kilos. On the other hand, salties are the world's largest living reptile, which is terrifying. Males tend to range from four to five meters long and can weigh up to a thousand kilos. That's huge. No, nobody's... That is outrageous. It's huge. It's so so heavy. That's almost the, the weight of a car. Wow. Jeez, they're huge. Um, and then females can get up to be uh, three meters long, which and they can often be um, l- larger than some of the male freshwater crocodiles. Uh, freshies tend to breed during the tropical dry season, which is in July and August, where saltwater crocs will breed in the wet season, which is from November to March. So, yeah, that's all I got about crocs, but I'll leave you with one last thing. How do you tell the difference between a crocodile and an alligator? How? One you'll see in a while, and the other you'll see later. (laughs) That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook. Uh, And if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week 
where the team will once again get lost, lost in, in science. science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.